HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Juul, sous vide by Chef Steps. Juul takes the guesswork out of cooking. Learn more at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. The topic? Restaurants and rules. Some rules are based on religion. This makes for an unusual scene in a Manhattan restaurant, a shy 20-year-old dictating the kitchen standards to a humble veteran chef. While other rules promote health and safety. But who are these feared rule keepers with the power to shut a restaurant down? They're not really like food, food lovers. Some restaurant rules fall outside the domain of the kitchen. All civil rights issues have basically, uh, at one point or another, revolved around the bathroom. For more, tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to In the Drink on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Joe Campanelli. When I'm not hosting In the Drink, you can find me at Fausto, where I'm the co-owner, beverage director, and try to make sure that the bills get paid over there. Uh, I'm also a partner at Celestine, where I help out with the wine program and the founder of Anona Wines. But it's enough about me. I'm really excited for today's guest. We have Athena Bochanis, the founder and owner of Palinkery Wines. They're an all-Hungarian wine distributor based right here in Brooklyn. And I'm really excited to have Athena in the studio with us today. Welcome, Athena. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, how cool is it that you have all Hungarian wines? I think what you've done is uh, courageous. I know someone who started my own business, um, what it takes to uh, in order to do that. Um, but I'd love to hear the story for you. I know you weren't someone who'd worked in the wine industry for a long time. What made you want to go out and get into the really competitive world of wine distribution? <laughs> So I am not from the wine industry. Before I started my business, I actually never worked in food and drink, which is something that I really tried to downplay when I started. But now I can tell you because I've had my business for almost five years. Um, I think sometimes it might be that to be willing to take a risk like I took, it's almost better to be a little bit, like to be brave like that. You should almost be a little bit ignorant. I think 
it's it wasn't so much ignorance, but because I wasn't inundated in the industry, I wasn't convinced it couldn't work. I kind of saw it from the outside, so I thought to myself, yeah, it doesn't exist, but why not? Um, and I didn't have people really telling me it was a bad idea. Sometimes when I talked to wine people before I started, they were like, that's really risky, that's really tough. Um, but I kind of saw it as well. I love Hungary and I love these wines and I think they can be successful, so I'll just try it. Um, so I didn't feel like I wasn't inundated. I didn't feel like I had as much to lose, maybe. Um, but the way I started my company is I was in law school and I did my first summer internship in Budapest. And when I was there, I I had like the lowest expectations. I, I had nothing kind of connecting me with Hungary and I didn't know anything about it. And I think a lot of people still to that to this day, I mean, feel the same about Hungary who are living here in New York, whatnot. And I just couldn't believe how how great of a country it was. The food and the drink scene was really developed. They really have their own culture of food and drink. And it's a really developed culture. And to me, it represented this sort of old world, old fashioned, but really developed and really cherished like local culture. And I completely fell in love with it. I think also for a lot of people in New York, like that's, we love that in food and drink. Like the idea that it's something authentic, it's something um, old fashioned, traditional, maybe like natural and, you know, unassuming kind of still serving the practical aspects of like making wine and making food and surviving and living your life, but doing it in a way that really, I guess like just is traditional. It kind of values like what they've done for a long time. They totally have that in Hungary. And it was just such a surprise to me. And I thought it was so cool and I was also thinking, I hate law school. So it was, uh, everything kind of came together for me to think, maybe I want to do something with this, uh, with Hungarian food and drink. And how did you choose Hungary as the location for your study abroad? <laughs> um, it was really, when you go to NYU Law School, you can kind of do two things. You can go the firm route work for like a corporate firm or you can do public interest. So I decided to do public interest and I was looking through a database of internships and I saw one in Budapest and really like, I mean, it was, I was so ignorant. Like I Wikipedia Budapest and it was like safe city. I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> Looks pretty. Apparently I won't get killed or something. So, you know, let's go for it. I really like when you're in law school, you're so busy. You're not thinking about, like your summer. You're just like accepting an internship, going back to class. So I, I had no expectations. I didn't know what to think. I was really not expecting anything like what I found. Uh, but the food and the drink of Budapest really just blew me away. Um, so then I spent a bunch of time in Hungary and I was in the wine regions. I did a bunch of tasting just like as a fan. I wasn't This is on subsequent trips? This is on subsequent trips. And then I ended up going back for seven months in law school. Yeah, I studied abroad happen? in law school. It's funny, I studied abroad for, I went to NYU also. And, nice. Uh, during my study abroad for NYU's where I really fell in love with wine. Uh, first in Madrid, where I saw they just had wine as a, sort of like a grocery on the table. Like mm -hmm. you think of bread or water. And it's like, oh, that's really nice. And then in Italy, where I got to visit uh, my first vineyards and take class with Ian Dagata and, and great people. Um, so it's, it's awesome to see how, uh, <laughs> 
the, you know, the study abroad programs actually expose you also to this other cultural side. Yeah. It's amazing because I, it really, I was completely exposed to like the food and drink. And that was really, even though I wasn't there for that, obviously Mm -hmm. I was there for legal human rights, constitution building things. But the food and the drink culture just completely blew me away. I think also, you know, we didn't have a Hungarian restaurant in New York City. We arguably still don't. So I didn't even know that it was a cuisine and a wine culture worth exploring. And I thought I knew all the cool stuff. I live in New York. I, you know, was here for when, like, the Austrian stuff became cool Mm -hmm. and... I just figured it must not exist because it's not here. And I realized I was so ignorant. Like, actually, you go to a restaurant in Budapest and it's all Hungarian food and it's all Hungarian wine. Like, they have their own world, um, which seems like so obvious maybe, but I it just completely blew me away and I was just got so into it. Now, before you went to Hungary, had you, you didn't work in the industry, but no. uh, were you an enthusiast? Were you reading? Were you going to restaurants? I was an enthusiast. So I was a German major in undergrad, also at NYU. And because of that, I was, my first experiences with wine as an adult were in German wine and Austrian wine. And I was very, I thought that was really cool. Especially that was sort of having a movement when I was in college in New York. And... I think that also made me think when I got to Hungary, it made me open to some of those dry whites, which I think are in a similar, like at least a similar mentality of the type of people who would try Hungarian wine might be the people who were trying the Austrian wines. And I, it also made me think that this might be viable for people in New York because I was kind of coming from that side. But I was just an enthusiast, just into it, would, you know, have some dry Riesling during exams and things like when I was an undergrad, but I really didn't work in it. Mm -hmm. So when I had the idea to start this company, actually my original idea was all work for someone doing, working with Hungarian wine. And I looked around, I saw who was working with it. No one was committed to it. And I, I was like, well, they're not working with the brands I like. It's not how I pictured it. And then I just kind of jokingly entertained the idea of maybe just doing it myself. Um, And I ended up looking into it and kind of starting that. I actually, I trailed another import distributor for about a year. Like, not every day, but I met with him. They imported Spanish cider. They're now kind of, that portfolio is broken up. But Mm. they had a little company that I kind of based mine on. Oh, I remember them. Um, Rowan. Rowan, yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, the passion of Spanish cider. Yeah. They're they're really amazing. He also is an NYU guy. I didn't know that. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really interesting. I mean, <laughs> I can imagine like what a what a left turn going from like law school to wanting wanting to work for a wine distributor. Yeah, uh, which is also something I, I worked for Vinifera Imports. Uh, it is uh, it is a hard job. I can't imagine that like going around the streets, especially selling, trying to sell Spanish cider. And mm-hmm. I know that he had some troubles with it. Mm-hmm. Like, what about that gave you the uh, the hope that this might be a good idea for you? The selling part really scared me, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And to this, you know, not really anymore, but it's not my personality to bang down someone's door and, like, demand that you taste with me. So that was a little bit stressful. I think that I thought, um, if I do this, I have to do it my way. And I, I just, I felt like 
I could convince people of it. I felt like I'm passionate enough about this. I really believe in it. I really love it. And even if I can get five people on my side at the beginning, like we can build something. But you have to have a lot of confidence, especially when you're coming in with something that people weren't looking for and they don't know anything about and they're looking at you like you're insane. And actually you're the outsider, so maybe you are the insane one. But you have to act like it's totally cool and no problem, like you'll want this soon. It's it's really difficult. It's a lot of posturing. And the wines that you loved back in Hungary, were they not available in the States or were they just spread out amongst a bunch of different distributors? So you couldn't work for one distributor and work with a bunch of Hungarian wines. The ones that I loved in Hungary were not imported. So like when I was in Hungary, actually, I it was the first time I had a rosé that I liked. This was from Duji Tamás, who I import now and is like our best-selling wine. And it was in Hungary that I tried it. In Hungary, they take rosé pretty seriously, and they have for a while. So they had good rosé before we really had access to good rosé, like on a bigger scale, I would say. So that, for instance, is a wine that I was like, I have to have this wine. And I thought it before I started my company. He's exactly who I had in mind. And that wasn't imported, for instance. And that ended up being, like, by far and away, my best-selling wine. So... I looked at other people doing Hungarian wine things, but I also thought no one knows about Hungarian wine, or if they do, no one's excited about it. It's not, I didn't feel like it was growing. And I'm in Hungary seeing how much it's growing, thinking to myself, this is a huge like opportunity, and no one's taking it, including the people importing, because no one's focusing on it. Mm-hmm. And if you import other things, you're busy with those other things because they're making you money. So like, why would you break your back promoting something that like might you might make a sale down the line. So I I saw it as like I need to be the one who's willing to make that investment to promote this stuff and then I'll be the one who eventually reaps the reward, but it's not going to sell itself. And I thought my company has to just be Hungarian wine. Do you remember your first big sale and how that felt? I remember my first sale. I live in Greenpoint and I walked into Vinebox on Nassau Avenue in Greenpoint and I was like, hello, the guy wasn't there. And he's like, hello, can you help me? And I go in the back room and all of these, like a stack of cases had fallen on him. And they were kind of like tipped on him, like leaning on him, like 15 boxes. And I like pushed them back off of him. And so I like saved him, which is the perfect introduction for my first sale. Cause then he's like, oh, I guess I have to buy your wine now. And I was like, yeah. Um, so, and I was like, I, and you know, I just acted like I'd done it before, but I'd never done it before. And I just went in and said, yeah, I'm here selling Hungarian wine. They're new to the market. I was freaking out inside. And I just totally acted like, tried to act like it was totally normal. I'd done it a million times and he ended up buying 10 cases. And that was my first. Wow. I know. And he's still my client. And every time I see him, I'm just like, you know, you're my first client, right? Like... Um, yeah, and I, it was really cool and it was such a great feeling. And obviously, you know, every sale wasn't that easy, but like it definitely made me feel great. And I think that is something that you see and we're lucky to be in, in this place in our industry that people are open-minded and they're kind of like, oh, you're brand new. Instead of being like, oh, you're a hack. They're kind of, they're like, okay, respect. Like I'll try this. You know, they're not 
signing they're not like gonna make a big investment in mm-hmm. you but like okay let's give it a shot you want to do this let's do this like they're they're open to trying it and they kind of respect that you did um and those people sometimes can help you convince other people that this is a thing so it worked out like that and he was someone like that great what are some of the early challenges that you you faced doing this when i first started i would say the hardest thing i mean first of all is convincing I don't have, I didn't have relationships because I never worked in the industry. So it was pushing all of my friends who did work in restaurants to give me a connection to somebody. And then it was convincing those people that these wines are super cool. Even though, imagine like I'm not from the industry. So when people tell me they're not cool, I'm thinking to myself, what? I mean, they're probably right. But I just acted like they're wrong because I had to. And... I just like really stayed the course. So I would say like in those first, in the first year, it was a lot of me taking people's like, they're looking at me like I'm crazy. They're acting like I'm crazy. They're telling me that I'm crazy and me telling them that they're wrong. And it was a lot of, you know, of course I'm worrying that maybe they're right. But I really had to like, you really have to be strong, I would say. And you have to take a lot of criticism and a lot of stares um, in practical terms, like cash flow is always an issue because I don't have an investor, so we're self-funded. Luckily, Hungarian wine is relatively affordable for what it is, but that was always an issue. But I thought to myself, I'm going to start small. I'm going to pay for it myself. I'm going to put all my passion into it. I'll see what works and what doesn't. And if it totally doesn't work, then it doesn't work. And I'll drink the wines and I'll do something else. And if I could do this, I could do something else. So it seems know. like it's been working. Yeah, it's working. <laughs> I see. I see you at all the cool places now. Is at Compagnie, Devancer Natural, and Ruffian, and Verve, and I, my local wine store, Vanderbilt Wine Merchants. Here, uh, it's great to see you all around. Yeah, it's it's a totally different situation right now. It's taken some years, but I think that right now, um, like all of that effort I put into making this not something strange, but something that maybe is interesting or is worth tasting is paid off a bit. But only part of it is me. The wines are also legit. But I think that nothing is that weird once we see it enough. And that was really this idea I had that kept me going in those early months. I thought I might, the analogy I always use is like, something in fashion that's really ugly, like bell bottoms or like overalls or something. And you're like, this is so ugly. I hate that. I can't believe people are wearing it. And then like you see it again and you're like, I still hate that so much. And then you see it a third time and you're like, I guess this is a thing. And you see it a fourth time and you're like, I'm going to order some. I'm going to wear that. And that's just like, we're not actually that stuck in our ways. And I really believe if I stuck with it, this won't be weird. People Mm -hmm. won't think I'm crazy if I just ride it out. And I think that I'm definitely at the point where people don't think I'm crazy, um, which is cool. (laughs) And yeah, I really wanted to be in places where people were open-minded, progressive wine lists. And those are all like have been great clients of mine and definitely help build the brand and make people more open-minded. It seems incredible that you had this vision and you had the the, sort of the guts to stay with it. Did you have any moments of self-doubt? Not really. Um, Of course, some. Like, sometimes I 
doubted, I never doubted the concept, but sometimes I doubted what wines I brought in because I don't, I'm not a sommelier. I didn't come from that background. And I really doubted like, what if, you know, I don't taste as well as these other people. And especially when I started and I've gotten better, obviously, but when I started, I was really like, what if I picked the wrong wines? What if there were awesome wines and I brought these wines and they're not the right wines and things like that. So that worried me. But yeah, it's, and you know, you, you always have to be, it's, it's like that balance between confident enough to do this and go for it and also self-critical enough to accept when something isn't working mm-hmm. and say, okay, maybe this idea is working, but like this wine was not a success. And just, you need to be able to accept that. This brand people don't love. Even if I love it, like I have to let it go. So it's kind of this give and take, but overall, like the concept I believed in, yeah. And what did you find surprising that when you first started, you would never have imagined? Hmm. When I first started, I brought in two wines from a producer named Arvai in Tokai, a dry ferment and a dry harsh levelu. And I thought the dry ferment, this is what people already know. This is like the normal grape of Hungary relatively. This is like the flagship that they've been building since the 90s in dry wines. So the ferment, I thought, is going to sell. And the Harsh Levelu is going to be this weirdo side wine that I'm just going to drink. The Harsh Levelu, in reality, was the first wine to sell out. And the ferment, I could not sell. That was a surprise. Why do you think that is? I think that actually people hadn't seen a dry harsh levelu. So it was more interesting. Mm-hmm. And I actually also think that... Because at that point, Kira Yudvar is sort of making the rounds with dry ferment. They had dry ferment. And you see, we had that mm-hmm. on our list at Disnoku. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Kira Yudvar, Disnoku, Royal Tokai all had a dry uh, mm-hmm. furment. Also, there were some other like smaller dry furments on the market. So I think... And then I realized, okay, if I'm going to go full guerrilla marketing on Hungarian wine, which is pretty much what I what I did, I can't actually follow the market trend. I have to kind of change the market trend. And I realized that even though the Hungarian government is like pumping money into dry ferment, I was like, maybe this isn't the way to go. Ferment also, I think, just as a wine is a lot more, it's less accessible than Harsh Levelu. Mm-hmm. It's more structure- it's less fruit, more... A little fuller bodied. A little fuller bodied, a little bit more of like, depending on the style, but it can be this kind of tangy, funky, earthy quality to it that is... Yeah, and and it's never this light, easy wine. If it is, you're getting ripped off. Mm-hmm. Like, the best ferments are always these really complex, bigger whites. Harsh Levelu, I think, has more fruit, more like a honeyed petrol. It's also complex, but I think more accessible. And speaking of your guerrilla marketing campaigns with Harsh Levelu, <laughs> I absolutely love the video that you uh, you did with Jeff Taylor, uh, where he my Harsh Levelu muse, as I call him, <laughs> where he falls asleep and uh, has a dream sequence where just women are dancing and pouring Harsh Levelu down his throat, and mm-hmm. he's loving it, and then he wakes up to realize that's not his reality. <laughs> How did that come about? <laughs> Um, I don't know if I should be proud to say that this is this is my idea. Um, it was actually I probably have Caleb Ganser at Compagnie to thank for the this whole idea. He said to me at one point, like, I know you love Harsh Levelu, but 
like, what is with that word? And you're always going around saying it in a Hungarian accent, like, and it's just, he's like, no one knows what you're saying. And he's like, it's such a strange word. And I, I was kind of like a little bit annoyed, but also it was good advice. Like, and it was, he made a good point, which is like, that's a really weird word and no one knows it. It's weirder than ferment. It's weirder than UFARC even. And so I had this idea, you know what? I'm going to make a song. And the song is just going to be the word harsh level on repeat. So I made a song with my friend and it was kind of like an R&B trap song, which is my favorite genre. And then I was like, well, now I have to make a music video. And who should star in it but Jeff Taylor? I mean, he's the face of the wine world, an actor by trade. So we decided to make this video, um, got like Dan Bevan, who also had worked at Compagnie to, he is also an NYU grad, like made the video. I had just my friends come in as the harsh honeys. The NYU class is like a million people a year. So, but a lot all of, over the place. I know, but you know, got some talent uh-huh. popping up here. So, but that's true. It is a million people. Um, so yeah, we ended up making that video. It was like the funnest thing to film because we, I brought 10 bottles of Harsh Levelu and I took off the labels and just wrote Harsh Levelu, like non-vintage. And But we were just chugging Harsh Levelu, pouring it in Jeff's mouth. It was like the happiest night of his life. He, he was like, can we shoot that scene again? <laughs> I bet the next happiest night of his life is when he hears that he's now the face of the wine industry. <laughs> Oh, he's going to love that. This is all for Jeff, yeah. It's all for Jeff Taylor. Mm. Okay, on that note, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, when we get back, we'll be back with more with Athena Bocanis. Bocanis, sorry, Bocanis of Palinkery. We're going to taste some wine. We're going to learn a little bit more about Hungarian wines right after this. This program is brought to you by Jules Sous-Vide. My name is Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the executive director of HRN and a real-life Juul user. When you cook with Juul, there's zero guesswork. So steak, chicken, seafood, turkey, vegetables, and eggs all come out exactly the way you like them. The Parrot app is intuitive to use and preloaded with all the recipes you'll need. And it has a great visual doneness guide. Juul is awesome for holiday cooking. It's easy to cook for a crowd and it's perfectly precise, so you can focus on entertaining without worrying about checking food temps while Juul does all the work. You can try out new cuts fearlessly. One of the best things I ever made sous vide was a juicy, tender heritage goose with juniper berries, and it was life changing. And pro tip Juul is small and packs easily, so you can sneak it along on your holiday travels to be this season's food hero everywhere you go. With Juul, you get perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Juul and use code HRN, as in Heritage Radio Network, to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code HRN. And happy holidays from all of us at Team HRN. All right, we are back with Athena Bichanis of Palinkery Wines here in the studio. Athena, uh, since we have you in the studio, I'm hoping that you can give us a little wine primer on the wines of Hungary because there's no one better to to do that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's a huge. Uh, there's it's a it's a vast 
wine country, I think much bigger than a lot of people think. Probably the introduction for a lot of people in America is the sweet wines. But as you've uh, proven with your company, it's so much more. Um, tell, like, where should we start? What should we know about Hungarian wines? So, yeah, I would say that's a great way to just kind of introduce it is that people think they always lump Hungarian wine in with some of the wine growing countries around Hungary. But the truth is, is that Hungary is a pretty big wine growing country. It's 22 wine regions. And there's not one place in Hungary that you cannot grow wine in. There's no mountain peak or desert or like every single square inch of Hungary is fertile soil. So it's like in the center of Europe and it's continental climate in the north and sub-Mediterranean in the south. So it's, and it's landlocked, like at about a thousand feet elevation and then going up from there, but there's no like extreme conditions. So it's really ideal for agriculture and wine. Wine grows natively there. Venice vinifera grows natively. They've found two million-year-old fossils of Venice vinifera in Eger, for instance, like on the mountaintop. So it grows there wildly. And in some spots in communism, like in some very high, higher winemaking spots or like a steep cliff or something where the tractors couldn't go in communism, they let everything kind of go and like they were overgrown and a lot of them are overgrown with Venice vinifera. So it's all over the place. I think this is a big misconception. People imagine it's like a cold country. They imagine it's like Poland or something, which is much colder. And maybe there's one corner where you can make wine. And it's really completely not like that at all. It's very arable. So in the north of Hungary, um, the famous region, the most famous region is Tokai. This is northeast Hungary. It's the home of the first dessert wine in the world, the first sweet wines in the world, and also the first kind of appellation or like um, vineyard designation system in the world that was related to the sweet wine. So in Tokai today, you have sweet wine, but also really impressive dry wine from Tokai. And also people might know this as well. Also in the north of Hungary, um, like there's the second most famous wine region, I would say is Eger, or this is like kind of along the same hilly volcanic soil ridge that's coming from Tokai. And then there's all in North Hungary, this continental climate, hilly with various levels of volcanic soil. In the south of Hungary, and then actually they're making wine also in center parts of Hungary as well, but usually not of as high of a quality just because it's like more lowland. But sometimes you can find good wine there as well. In the south, it's the sub-Mediterranean climate, so this is going to be a little bit warmer. This is a lot of red wine. Rosé is really great from this place. Cab Franc is famous from the southernmost tip of Hungary. But basically every appellation of these 22, they have, you know, like something special about them. In general, in Hungary, it's a lot of small wineries. This is also different than other post-communist countries. I heard, for instance, like in Bulgaria, this is also hearsay, by the way, so you could tell me I'm wrong. I heard that, for instance, in places like Bulgaria, it's like the big state collective basically was just bought by a small or like a big company. And now it's these huge wineries still in Bulgaria. In Hungary, is a very different model. After communism, they split up a lot of these big wineries or people bought tiny properties. So it's a ton of tiny, tiny wineries in Hungary, which means that 
it's one of the reasons I would say you don't see more Hungarian wine here. There's not like a huge brand. But it's another reason why it's so fun to import Hungarian wine. There's so many like handcrafted, family run, awesome wineries, like so many. So that's a lot of what we import. Um, so we consider the communist era, the sort of dark ages, and um, that that time right after 1990, the renaissance of these wines. Mm-hmm. What was happening um, when all of a sudden people had the ability to um, make, you know, to own land and make wine in whatever style they want and maybe travel more freely to mm-hmm. uh, what were people doing at that time and how is the the wine industry in Hungary sort of changed since then? I think that, um, so in communism, you could have up to two hectares, I think, ish of your own land if you were a winemaker or even if you weren't. And you, it was called a hobby vineyard. So you could own property, mm. but you just had to kind of promise not to sell that wine. So a lot of our winemakers were working for the state, but also had like a small thing on the side. So some of those actually, those plots became places where we have wine from today. Like for instance, Adavai makes this harsh level the first wine I sold out of, and it's from their family's vineyard, the hobby vineyard from the 70s. But in general, like, unless we're talking those plots, everything was replanted because things had been planted for mass production with tractor farming. And they were these, like, communist tractors, so really not even good tractors. So they had to replant all the vines. They had to change the rows. Also, they started recultivating these better spots that were at a higher elevation, maybe stopped cultivating, or, I mean, they should have, some of these lower lowland places. Um, but yeah. And so what styles were they making at that time? Were they, mm-hmm. um, I know that your book is really big on indigenous grapes, which, uh, I, I have a personal interest in indigenous grapes from wherever they may come. They were, I imagine people were excited about international grapes and you saw in like Croatia that happening at, at that time. And definitely, I mean, so many places in the world mm-hmm. were experimenting with international grapes and indigenous grapes. That's a, but, yes, you're totally right. In Hungary as well, they were in the nineties, they started experimenting with Pinot, Cap Franc, Cap Sauv. Actually, the reason they realized that Cabernet Franc is so great in the South of Hungary is a Hungarian sommelier who'd been working in France got some people from the university in Bordeaux to study the soil samples from Vilain and tried to figure out what international varietals they could experiment with. And Cab Franc was kind of the, the finding. I think for the average winemaker probably in Hungary, like your life didn't change that much between, you know, the 80s and the 90s. But I think that for like there was a lot of international involvement. That was like the change. So it would have been like international varieties coming in, international investments, like Kirai Udvar is an international investment, coming in, buying a bunch of land in Tokai. Especially in the 90s, Hungary had a ton of investment just in general, and the wine industry like big time, especially, yeah, in Tokai. Before the end of communism, there were dry white wines, but in Tokai, it was pretty much like sweet white wines. And they were almost always blends. This is just traditionally what they would do because in this climate, you you never know kind of what grapes are going to be good or not. So it's safer every year to have a blend so you can kind of be flexible with what you put in the blend. So single varietal wines are kind of a new thing that were introduced to Hungary 
in the 90s. And they were also making red wine, but again, usually blends and usually with native grapes. So now you'll see single varietal wines, international varietals. And what about styles? Were people experimenting with new French oak and uh, (laughs) the latest modern technology? Were there any traditional winemaking styles that, that made it through this communist era? I would say, so one of the things I, you know, I told you when I went to Hungary, I was so, I was so into the place because I thought, wow, this is like really, it's developed, but it's really sort of its own thing. And you felt a little bit like it's 1920 or something. And there it's changing in Hungary all the time. But I would say that you see people doing old-fashioned winemaking more than you see modern winemaking. Um, <clears throat> so, like, that that's cool, and they have maintained a lot of that. In the, in the 90s and the aughts, yeah, because, like, even if you are free to travel, you still only speak Hungarian, maybe, and you, you don't have the money to travel. So you're still in your bubble. And it's it's changing bit by bit. A lot of those winemakers' kids have been abroad, and they went to Napa and Italy, and they've seen other ways of winemaking. But they're pretty protective, I would say, of their traditions in Hungary. Just a, an aside, do you speak yeah. Hungarian at this point? I do. What was that like to learn? It seems, <laughs> it seems like it was a, could have been a big challenge. Yeah, people think, wow, you went to law school, you started this company, and I'm like, you guys... None of that was hard. Learning Hungarian was hard. That was the hardest thing I've done. It it was brutal. Like, it's just, there's no picking it up. There's no casual learning. It's very, it's just completely different than English. And You You don't see it in your everyday life the way you might see some French around or some Italian. There's not one word, really, that we share or that you could even guess what Mm -hmm. it is. The structure is completely different. So (laughs) there's like a tonal quality to it. So it's really challenging. But if you're nerdy, it's really fun. And you felt that was important for your business. I did, but it's also just my personality too. My first summer when I was there doing the internship, my boss, who's American, who lived in Budapest, married to a Hungarian woman, I said, should I try to learn some Hungarian? I'm here for 10 weeks. And he said, don't even try. You won't be able to. And I was like, okay, well, I know what I'm going to be doing. Exactly. I was like, sign me up for class. It's just my personality. And then I got learning it, and I was like, this is the craziest thing. Now I'm just obsessed. And this is even before I decided to start my business, actually. Mm -hmm. So, But yeah, and it, it does on a practical level. Like, it helps me so much. For instance... I brought a wine today, and this wine, the winemaker doesn't speak Thank you speak for English. doing that, by the way. Yeah. Of course. We're sipping it right now. What What did you bring? <laughs> so I brought a, this is a harsh levelu. So this is a native grape from Hungary. I told you is less commonly made as a single varietal wine, especially when I started my business. It was pretty hard to find, but I love this style of wine. Um, harsh levelu is native to Hungary. It means linden leaf in Hungarian. This one is from Shomlo, which is northwest Hungary. It's Hungary's smallest appellation. It's a small, extinct volcanic butte. And all of the wines here are have a pretty volcanic quality. So it's black basalt volcanic soil. Um, the famous grape from here is called Ufark, which he also makes. But this is a harsh levelu. Um, the harsh levelu that we're drinking is a skin contact harsh levelu. This is 30 days. 
on its skins, and it's from 2014, which was a really tough vintage in North Hungary. But if you have a wine from 2014, especially a harsh Levaloo, which ages extremely well, then it's definitely worth trying. If you ever see a 14 dry from North Hungary around, um, it's really, it's something that they didn't make a ton, but what came out might be pretty interesting. It's be- beautiful. <laughs> it's a terrible joke. <laughs> terrible. Uh, nice. it's, it's really great. Uh, so it's an orange wine, right? 30 days of skin maceration. Mm-hmm. It's an orange wine, yeah. Is that, are orange wines having a moment in Hungary right now? Is that a, a, in any way a traditional style? Of, were they made uh, in the past? Perhaps so long ago that no one can remember. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I said, like Hungary, I mean, the wine culture there is pretty professional. So like, you know, maybe they made it back in ye old like hundreds of years ago, but not in the last hundred years. So the guy who made this wine, his name is Jas Lotzi. He tasted an, a Slovenian orange wine about 15 years ago and was completely obsessed and kind of figured out how to do it and was the first person really in Hungary to be making skin contact wines. I really love it. It has like an aged Riesling quality to it, mm-hmm. like a real distinct minerality, mm-hmm. some of that petrol quality that you might anticipate from that, um, but different on the palate, uh, not totally. as stone fruity. Um, that's really good. The nose, Harsh Levelu, one of the reasons I love it is it's sort of a sleeper. If you taste, if we had a 16 Harsh Levelu here, you would think this is just dead, bore. it's fine, but like... But if I had a 13, if I had a 10, if I had an 8, it would be just so aromatic. And it has this, like you said, that kind of Riesling, petrol, honeyed, apricot, dried apricot thing. And just the more time you give it, the more it expresses itself. Can I ask you, what's the price for this wine retail? Retail, this is... Mm, I want to say like 22. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think that's great because... We've been. I've been finding at uh, at my restaurants that people are just looking for orange wines, mm-hmm. um, and to have an orange wine uh, at an approachable price, an entry level price, is really hard to find. And then the good ones that you know, since two thousand seven, I've had always had an orange wine by the glass of my restaurants, and uh, it used to actually be easier to find good orange wines that weren't crazy expensive. Now, with so many more people interested in them and so many more winemakers making them, I think the Mm -hmm. quality is super variable and the inexpensive ones get sort of gobbled up quickly. So I think you get a lot of uh, distinctiveness, a lot of character, a lot of quality for the price here. Mm -hmm. This is really cool. Cool. I'm glad you like like it. it. Yeah. All right. So I don't normally do this, but I actually brought a wine for you to taste blind. I love it. Bring you're, it on. You're cool with this? Let's okay. do it. All right. So don't look. Okay. I'm not looking. I did a bad job of covering it up. <laughs> I never get blinded on Hungarian wine. This is exciting. So blind you on Hungarian wine. This is a Hungarian wine. Um, and it is... Uh, disti- well, I know what it is. You know what it is? Just yeah. like that? Yeah. Well, what is it? <laughs> this is a dry Samarodny. You're right. I was given this as a gift a few years ago and haven't <laughs> opened it up. It's not one of your wines. Um, I know this wine. I love this wine. So this is a 
dry summer road. So, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not like a, you know, legendary taster. It's just dry summer road is like the most distinctive flavor profile. So this is a dry oxidative style wine that's made from botrytis. So on the nose, you have the oxidative quality and you also have like a botrytis, um, which, you know, can only be one thing really, but... Um, I love this wine. This is a very cool wine. It's so complex. I mean, the wine that you poured as well, extremely mm-hmm. complex. And this is 2007 vintage. I think I can actually pr- pronounce the producer's name, Samuel Tinone. <laughs> <laughs> He's from France. <laughs> oh. So part of that, um, uh, you know, the foreign investment, I guess. A bit, yeah. yeah. I think, so yeah, he's a Frenchman making wine in Tokai. But he's, and there are some French people in Tokai making wine. But it's, I think it's great to have, Hungary has the natural goods and they have a tradition of winemaking. And if, you know, when and if they can interact with outsiders, it can be a very fruitful experience Mm -hmm. because he's from France, he's bringing that experience. If I come to Tokai, I'm bringing a perspective of a consumer in New York. And I think like, it just it doesn't happen as much maybe as in other places because of the language barrier and because it's all these small tiny family run things but he's a great example i think like the wines he makes are really great this is really pretty it reminds me almost more of serval jura wine than Definitely. i was anticipating it to be like really uh, more sherry like but just reading a little bit about Maroni. mhm it is kind of sherry like too. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is probably the wine that we had before this is Harsh Levelu. Mm-hmm. And this Samarodny, I don't know, but like probably has Harsh Levelu in it. So Samarodny is usually the same type of blend that you would have in a Asu, which is usually Furmin Harsh Levelu. Okay, so we have uh, some cool orange wines, some interesting oxidative wines, mm-hmm. harsh levelu mm-hmm. in a fresh, crisp style um, that benefits with some age, some ferment, which is a little bit kind of meatier, a little fuller and more textured and less fruit. And we didn't really talk much about red wines. What red wines should people look out for? So the big native grape in Hungary is Cake Frankosh, which is Black Frankish. And I, I love Black Frankish. It's... If you haven't had it, um, I mean, you probably have, but if people haven't had it, I would say like, this is, you know, a gamet, like in the gamet Cab Franc kind of world of wine, it's bright red fruit. It's sort of like, you know, light medium body to like fuller medium bodied. So um, Cake Frankosh in Hungary is going to be in general, fuller bodied and riper than if you have one from Austria. And there's really great Cake Frankosh. Great. Uh, let's check out Kick Frankosh. And I guess on that note, we're going to have to wrap up. Well, it's been fun. Now we have all these wines, so. So, yeah, that's great. <laughs> if you see a bottle of Hungarian wine, look in the back, and if it says Palinkery, I would I would venture a guess that's going to be delicious, and you should go buy it. Awesome. Uh, and you can check out our friends at Verve. They were recently on the show, and uh, Vanderbilt Wine Merchants, I know. And you can mm-hmm. find them, as I said, at Ruffin and Company, and I'm sure a bunch of other great places uh, carry Athena's wines. Uh, I want to thank Rennie Lopez, who does our theme music, Jessamine 
Molly, who uh, produces this show, everyone here at Heritage Radio for putting it together. And thank you so much for listening. This has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.